There is a verse of Scripture in the book of Proverbs that is often read and quoted at such an event as this. It is the 14th chapter, verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Was the ancient philosopher right or wrong? Was he speaking in truth or indulging in a bit of pious daydreaming? Ask any politician or military leader what he thinks about it. Ask the people who write our syndicated columns. Ask the average man or woman on the street. Some will answer emphatically and write off. It's the gospel truth. It is true. Righteousness exalts a nation. Others will disagree. They hold that while righteousness is probably a nice thing, it does not exalt nations. Nations are exalted by military might, diplomatic maneuvers, by natural resources, by an ascending economy, and by technological ingenuity. Still others will postpone decision, for they're confused. They really don't know what they think. But history testifies that the author of this proverb was right. He was dead right. It declares that when empires have fallen, it has not been through outward pressure, but through inward moral collapse. They went down despite of their national wealth and their military genius. In Kipling's words, all their pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Any nation's claim to greatness and to security must ultimately depend upon the quality of her soul. Everything depends on that. Thomas Arnold once reviewed the downfall of the great world empires of the past and summed up what had happened by saying, Down they came, one after another, and all for the lack of righteousness. The secret of this nation's strength lies in the fact that it was founded on righteousness. Our early settlers came to these shores seeking, first of all, not national wealth, but a society of freedom based on righteousness. Before landing at Plymouth, our, Plymouth, our pilgrim forefathers inserted these words into the Mayflower compact, compact. We whose names are underwritten have undertaken for the glory of God to establish in Virginia the first colony for the advance of the Christian faith. And ten years later, our pilgrims said in the New England Federation Compact Agreement, quote, we all have come into these parts of America with one and the same end, namely to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the summer of 1787, representatives met in Philadelphia to write the Constitution of the United States. After they had struggled for several weeks and had made little or no progress, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin rose and addressed the troubled and disagreeing convention that was about to adjourn in confusion. Quote, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were gloriously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. Have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, 
that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice of it, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build this house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this." The very purpose of the pilgrims in 1620 was to establish a government based on the Bible. The New England Charter signed by King James I confirmed this goal. He said, quote, "...to advance the enlargement of Christian religion to the glory of God Almighty." Governor Bradford, in writing of the pilgrims landing, describes their first act, quote, "...being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell on their knees and blessed the God of heaven." The goal of government based on Scripture was further reaffirmed by the individual colonies, such as the Rock Island Charter in 1683, which begins, We submit our persons, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of hosts, and to all those perfect and most absolute laws of of His given us in His holy word. Those absolute laws became the basis of our Declaration of Independence, which includes in its first paragraph an appeal to the laws of nature and of nature's God. Our national constitution established a republic upon the absolute laws of the Bible, not a democracy based on the changing whims of the people. In his inaugural address to Congress, the first president of our nation stressed God's role in the birth of this republic. Quote, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of our independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded that the smiles of heaven cannot be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And Abraham Lincoln once said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The thing which above all else has made and kept America strong is the ethical and spiritual quality of her people. If we ever lose our moral virility and our spiritual depth, we're gone, and no amount of scientific skill or military prowess can put us back on our feet again. Dr. Charles Steinmet was not a preacher. For 30 years he was the chief engineer of the General Electric Company. In the last years of his life, Mr. Steinmet said, Our forefathers knew the power of prayer, the importance of Sabbath observance, and the need of family and public worship. To this, America owes its prosperity and growth. There are disquieting signs today that America is forsaking her heritage. We are using up our stockpile of morality and spirituality faster than we are replenishing it. I'll not bore you with the gory details, but consider the problem of organized crime in America. 
the profits from crime eclipsed the profits of the giant United States oil or automotive industries. This year, the gross revenues in the United States from illegal sale of cocaine stands at $35 billion. From marijuana, $24 billion. As many as 60% of our school-aged children have tried marijuana, and some as young as 10 or 11 years old are high on marijuana every day. Consider the sexual revolution, public standards regarding nudity, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, child molestation, have either crumbled or under fierce attack. Sexual revolution is having a profound effect on American life. In the last decade, the number of couples living together outside of marriage has doubled. One out of every two marriages ends in divorce. In Washington, D.C., last year more babies died by abortion than were permitted to live. Our newspapers are crowded every day with the stories of our moral failures. If we keep going the way we're headed, this nation is doomed. Righteousness is the condition of national strength and prosperity. The wages of sin is death for nations as well as individuals. The sovereign God in the universe does not play favorites. He has no cosmic pets upon whom He lavishes His benedictions regardless. God shows no partiality. The promise which He made to Israel so long ago applies equally to us. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you this day you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is easy to wave the flag and to boast of America's strengths and accomplishments, but this is a serious time, and no time for empty platitudes and noisy patriotic oratory. It's a time for a national self-examination and for a solemn rededication to the will and the way of a righteous God. We all love our native land and have a right to rejoice in our citizenship. Henry Cabot Lodge declared that an American citizen is the noblest title any man can bear. It's not the noblest, but it is the next to the noblest. Some time ago, the newspaper told of a citizen of Italian birth who owns a small service station in, in New Jersey. Each morning, he goes through the same routine. He runs up an American flag, doesn't burn it, by the way, runs it up, salutes it, and, and, and then he opens his business. Taking a tin can, he deposits a nickel in the tin can, and at the end of the year, he sends $18.25 to the treasurer of the United States as an expression of his gratitude for the, for the privilege of living and working under that flag. That's the way every one of us, every last one of us, ought to feel about his United States citizenship. But it would be the surest folly to take our privileges and freedoms for granted. They did not come easy. They were paid for by blood, sweat, and tears. And it's impossible to it is possible to lose them. Quite possible. If we're to preserve these blessings for ourselves and for our children, then we must attack the evils which threaten them. We must build the crumbling foundation of righteousness in our country. There are many things which are gloriously right about America, but there are other things which are dangerously wrong, and it is no lack of patriotism to acknowledge them and to try to change them. Righteousness exalts a nation. I'm glad 
that the ancient philosopher didn't use the word righteous, used the word righteousness instead of the word religion. He did not say religion exalteth a nation. If he had, he might have been misunderstood. Religion can mean righteousness, but some kinds of religion do not issue in personal and social righteousness, for they never get beyond pious words, forms, and ceremony. A nation can be religious without being righteous. If you don't believe it, ask Isaiah. Read again the first chapter of his prophecy. If you don't believe it, ask Jesus of Nazareth. Read his indictment of the scribes and the Pharisees in the 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus blazed away at the professional religionists of his day because they were substituting things technically religious for the solid virtues of moral and honest character. They were, as he said, tithing mint and anise and cumin, neglecting the weightier matters like justice and mercy and faith. They outwardly appeared righteous, but within they were full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I'm glad that the author of our text used the word righteous and left us in no doubt as to what he meant. What America must have, if she's to live and prosper, is public and personal and civic righteousness. And if our religion is not issuing in that kind of life, it's mere window dressing and nothing more. It is significant. And it is a dismaying fact that while religion is prospering in this country, the moral character of our society is disintegrating with all of our beautiful church edifices and elaborate rituals and increased activity. We're not getting through to God and our common life is not being cleansed and renewed. Have you heard this poem? We are blind until we see that, the human plan, that in the human plan nothing is worth the making if it does not make the man. Why build these cities glorious if a man unbuilded go, goes? In vain we build the world, unless the builder also grows. Our nation needs more of the moral stamina of the Puritans, that noble band of God's men and women who stood uncompromisingly for truth and purity and integrity in private and public life. You and I live in a day when it's fashionable to regard our Puritan ancestors with amusement or mild contempt. We think of them as a group of sanctimonious hip hypocrites who indulged at long, tiresome sermons and doleful song singing and had a negative attitude toward the legitimate pleasures of life. And so if we want to disparage someone, we say he's puritanical. But the, but the Puritans were a stalwart breed. And while we don't want their dour spirit, we, don't want, we, we do want or ought to want their rock-ribbed devotion to what is true and right. To use an expression from the Declaration of Independence, quote, there was a manly firmness, end quote, about these people, which we would do well to emulate. We may have gained in the disappearance of some of their particular dogmas and methods, but there was in Puritanism, listen, an ethical strength and a spiritual intensity which we need badly in America today. These people believed in sober, righteous, and godly lives, they believed in family unity and moral integrity. They were men of conscience. Concerning them, Dr. Parkhurst wrote, they set their consciences by the will of God as some folks set their clocks by the sun. They never had to be sought for in order to be found for they were always there and you could always tell what time of day it was by them. End quote. Now I submit that we desperately need more such, of such people in these critical days. Listen. This may sound redundant, but it's true. We need people of integrity. People who will value some things more than they value money. 
or political office. People who will not violate their principles. People who are not for sale. People who will do right though the planets fall. If moral decay is the real threat of our national security, then by far the finest contribution that you and I can make as private citizens to our beloved land is just to be the right kind of people. Men and women who prayerfully and constantly strive to improve the moral quality of our lives and that of our community. Nothing else, however impressive or needful, can possibly be a substitute for such solid goodness. You and I can find the conditions of divine blessings outlined in something which Jehovah God said to King Solomon, quote, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and, and will heal their land. Here's the formula for winning divine assistance. Here are the spiritual and ethical foundations of national strength and prosperity. If my people shall humble themselves. There is no greater obstacle to the free movement of God's Spirit than our pride. So if we are to have God's blessings, all boastfulness must go. All strutting, all condescension. For pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. If my people shall pray, would you call America a praying nation? Would you call even the Christian people of this community a praying people? How is it with you, my friend? Could you justly be called a man or woman of prayer? A nation on its knees is a great nation, and we must never forget it. If my people shall seek my face, are we? Is He the object of our quest? Is His way the goal of our desiring? How can we say that we are seeking God's face when we spend 15 times as much on pleasure as all humanitarian and religious causes received last year combined? How can we say that God is the goal of our desiring when less than one-third of the professing Christians in this country and in this church membership engage in public worship on an average Sunday. If my people shall turn from their wicked ways, the greatest hindrance to answered prayer is unconfessed and unsurrendered sin. And until we Americans turn from our wicked ways, until we give up our wrongdoing. All of our pleading for divine aid will be in vain. It matters not how fervent. James I. Vance once said, It is as useless to pray if we continue in known sin. It's like trying to light a lamp by turning off the power. The place to begin in any national revival is with our own hearts and households, within the people of this congregation this morning. America cannot be right until you and I am right. Will you now ask God to forgive your sin for Jesus' sake? And will you now, where you're sitting, will you now dedicate yourself anew to the cause of personal and civic righteousness? Will God bless America? Yes and no. 
Yes, if we fulfill these simple conditions. No, if we fail. It's up to us. I read somewhere recently that a group of psychologists engaged and enjoyed an experiment with a group of of orangutans. An orangutan is supposed to have the highest intelligence of any in the animal world. His intelligence is next to a man's intelligence. And they put him in a cage in freezing weather and they built a large fire in the corner. And the, the orangutan stood by the fire and warmed himself and felt real good. Over in the other corner was a stack of wood. Now the fire began to burn down. The flames were roaring at first, but they began to wane and flicker, and finally just red coals and then blue. And the orangutan stood there before the dying fire, shivering. He didn't have enough creative intelligence to go over to the wood pile and add wood to the flames to keep it burning. It seems to me that somewhere in the past, Somebody's built a fire of freedom for us. And these people, like these men who sat before me, and who represent their country, paid a great price for our freedom. And somewhere way back before you and I ever enjoyed this good land, somebody built a fire of freedom, and it was built upon the fuel of righteousness. And now the question is, do we have enough moral intelligence to go where we need to go for the fuel to keep the fire burning? Do we have enough moral conviction and determination and intelligence to understand that my community and my church and my nation will only be as righteous as I really am? Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, to stand in the presence of all of the symbols of freedom and liberty is to, is to be thrilled beyond words. What a joy. And yet to be reminded that America in its inception and beginning was based upon the Bible, upon a nation's quest for freedom, freedom to worship God, freedom to extend the gospel to a new land, to a new place, and that the strength of this nation has been in the strength of this nation's blessing from an almighty God upon a people who sought to serve Him. And so now I pray, Father, that You'll help us first of all to be aware that it is Jesus Christ who makes us free, free indeed. And that it is in our faithfulness to God that that freedom is maintained in the world. And I pray you'll call us today individually and corporately to a commitment to this nation's God and to this nation, to a community, to a people that stands away from God, resisting and, re and rejecting Him. I pray for a revival of spirit and heart, 
a reestablishing of the principles of right and righteousness, rededication, for I pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to do a tough thing. It's always tough in the midst of a crowded congregation where an emphasis has been placed upon celebration. If you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, when our invitation begins, it's for you to, I'm asking you for you to get up out of your seat and come and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Who knows but that you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And somewhere across this world, there are those the Lord says He seeks who will stand in the gap. That's the beginning place. Maybe at Bible school, somewhere in the past, you've placed your faith in Christ. Do it publicly today. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat in a moment and come and join this church if God is leading you to do that. Somewhere there might be a man or a woman who has touched by the fact that that they can indeed be a vital link in God's work anywhere if they're committed to Him, totally committed to Him. The world is yet to see a person who is totally committed to God and what that would do. I wonder if you'd be such a person. Come and say, Pastor, I want to rededicate myself to Christ, to God's will, in this place and in my world. While we stand to sing, we invite you in this invitation to come.